Welcome. I'm your host, Greg McEwen. I'm the author of two New York Times bestsellers, Effortless and Essentialism. And I'm here with you to learn how people can understand each other. Such a simple subject, but so important, so essential in today's world. Have you ever had someone come to you with a dilemma? But when you start to share your advice, they resist your every suggestion. The relationship gets more strained. You leave feeling frustrated and the other person has not been helped. Has that ever happened to you where you are confused about what to do, but when you open up, you immediately get advice and feel more alone and more confused than you were before? Well, today I have invited one of my heroes, Parker Palmer, to share a story or two some of the things he has learned over decades, and some actionable advice. By the end of this episode, you will be better able to help people unravel their own confusion and find the right way forward. Let's get to it. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. <coughs> Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Remember to teach the ideas in this podcast episode to someone else within the next 24 to 48 hours of listening. Parker Palmer, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much, Greg. I'm just delighted to be with you. Uh, the delight is seriously mine. I have been waiting many years. I don't know why I've been waiting so long to reach out to you, to talk to you. To me, you're a person of unique wisdom, and the work you have done has just the power of relevancy to the subject of this podcast, to the work that I'm feeling called to, and to the challenges that listeners have everywhere. Now, for people who aren't familiar with you or your work, could you just start us off with a Reader's Digest version of your story? Uh, sure, I can. Uh, Greg, I was born and raised in the Chicago area. I uh, went to a liberal arts college in Minnesota. From there, I spent a year in New York City working uh, as a student at uh, Union Theological Seminary. Realized at the end of the year that that was not my right path, and so I went out to Berkeley in the 1960s to do a PhD in sociology. So immediately, I think you can see uh, from my sociological interests that your topic about understanding each other is very much in my wheelhouse. I finished that PhD during that era of, of radical social change and upheaval mm. in 1969, having expected fully to go into the academy. But as we all know, that was an era in which uh, the cities were burning, the racial crisis was on the front burner, uh, as it always is in this country. Mm. And a great deal was happening that made me feel called not to the academy, but to the streets of the city. So in 1969, I moved to Washington, D.C. and became a community organizer uh, working on racial justice, working to build community against redlining and blockbusting and all of the racist strategies that this society has to keep us apart, to really mm. to keep us from understanding each other. And after five years of that work, I decided to take a sabbatical. It was very grueling work, very demanding work. And of course, it, it plunged me into a situation where understanding each other across divides became ab an absolutely critical component of what we were attempting to do. You can't use the words build community or work for racial justice without caring about understanding each other. Mm -hmm. So in 1974, I took a sabbatical for a year at a an intentional Quaker community near Philadelphia called Pendle Hill, 80 people living a, a really radically egalitarian life, uh, everybody making the same amount of money. Uh, running a small adult education center, cooking our and raising our food together, making decisions together, uh, meeting every morning in silent meeting, Quaker style, to try to discern what we could about our own ongoing callings. I found it so compelling that that one-year sabbatical stretched into 11 years of my life. And it was a, an intensive for me in all of the strategies of nonviolent social change, which is really what I had wanted to hone after five really challenging years as a community organizer. So when I came out of that, I felt there is no institution that can accommodate my sense of calling, which had by that time become not only the calling of an activist, but the calling of a, of a writer and a, and a teacher 
but in a larger classroom than any institution has to offer. And so that set me out on a an independent career writing. I've I've I'm 83 now. I've published 10 books and founded a nonprofit called the Center for Courage and Renewal, which for the past 25 years has been working with a kind of a public code, I guess, that represents a lot of what I learned as an organizer and through my experiences living in community uh, with other people and, and all of the complexities that come with that. And as you know, Greg, um, I've written about a variety of things, education, democracy, social change, leadership, spirituality, community, always wanting, you know, the freedom to explore where I felt led to explore and learning as, as time went by that uh, even in those years when I couldn't make a living by writing, I made a living by traveling around the country and speaking to people who'd read something and wanted to hear more. So universities, medical schools, uh, professional associations, foundations, religious communities, community organizations. It's been a very rich, rich journey across a a wide variety of uh, institutions, but better than that, a very wide array of people. And um, I'm enormously grateful for it and just glad to share with folks and continue to learn for myself uh, whatever it is we can figure out about this crucial, crucial subject of understanding each other. Here you are. You've spent a lifetime not just trying to improve your own ability to do that, to upgrade your own ability to hear, you know, that voice of conscience within you, but then also to be able to hear that interpersonal voice of conscience, something like that, where you can actually bridge these divides and connect with other people and really communicate heart to heart and and somehow beyond the symbols of words and language, but also have been instrumental in codifying that process and teaching it to other people. And I wonder, as you think about all of that experience, is there a story that comes to mind that just captures or names, you know, what that has been like? What happens when people start to be able to hear each other more deeply and understand each other more deeply? Yes, there is <laughs> more than more than a few. So I'll, <laughs> I'm going to try to pick one that seems representative of the larger scope of the work. Perfect. So a little bit of context. Um, in the early 90s, I established a nonprofit called the Center for Courage and Renewal. And we now have maybe 400 facilitators in this country and around the globe teaching uh, what we call the circle of trust process. Mm. Um, as, as that name suggests, this isn't aimed simply at individuals, but it's aimed at individuals in community. And for us, a circle of trust is typically 25 people, often from the same profession, but not always. Sometimes people from many different walks of life. But in the professional world, we've worked intensely with physicians, K through 12 teachers, college and university professors, administrators, healthcare workers across a, a range, 
religious leaders, social change activists, and, and so forth. The idea, we, we often talk about these circles of trust, which are always facilitated and always more than a one-off. That is, we will do not just a day or, or a weekend, but we will do a series of weekends over a year or two years with the same cohort of 25 folks so that they have a chance to go deeply not only into their own inner journeys, but also into the experience of community at a, at a level and a depth that, you know, very few people in America, anyway, have ever experienced. And um, the kind of, I guess, philosophical underpinning of this is pretty simple, and that is each of us has a, a voice of truth within ourselves that we need to learn to pay attention to. If you think about education in this country, there's not much emphasis on finding truth within yourself. There's a mm -hmm. lot of emphasis on finding it from expert opinion or textbooks or whatever. But to look within for that voice of truth that every person has seems to us critically important. There's also a very important source of truth, insight, leading, that lies between us. It's relational mm -hmm. truth based on relational trust. So we understand our circles of trust to be ways of being alone together or solitude in community. And, and it's a, an amazing and remarkable dance that we do where people have a chance to speak into the center of the circle, which we understand as safe space, made safe by a community which agrees to a few basic operating principles, one of which is no fixing, no saving, no advising, and no correcting each other. As you were alluding to earlier, so often when someone comes to me, you know, asking for help in figuring out a, a, a life issue, I'll listen for a few minutes, and then I'll start giving advice, or I'll tell them how they ought to look at it, or I'll suggest that this worked for me, I'm sure it will work for you. Mm. Um, and that actually does make a person feel unheard, alienated. And there's this great, great hunger, not only in the U.S., but around the world, for people to feel seen and heard. It, it's just one of the basic human needs that is rarely met. So in these circles of trust, we begin by saying, let us create a safe space where anyone can say anything they regard as true into the circle or and we, you know, we guide the discussion, we shape it around a text or a poem or a work of art or some way of, you know, of carrying a river along rather than letting mm -hmm. it just flood all the fields around it. Um, so you can say anything you want into the center of that circle that you feel comes from deep inside you. But at the same time, as you have the safety of not being fixed, saved, corrected, or advised, you're also listening to other people lay their truth alongside you. And a group like that starts to weave what I think of as a tapestry of truth, um, where people are saying, huh, that's interesting. Uh, the experience that person shared, I would have looked at a different way in my own life. What, what, does that do anything to illumine my journey a little more deeply? There's a lot of sort of silent communication going on. Mm. And when it comes to direct communication between people, we teach the, the use of honest, open questions. 
Um, now, it sounds easy, but it isn't, because most of us are, are very skilled at asking questions that are really little speeches in disguise. <laughs> uh, my favorite example is, have you thought about seeing a therapist? Is not an honest, <laughs> open question. But if I ask, if you tell me an issue in your life and I ask, uh, has anything like this ever happened to you before? I have no way of knowing uh, what the right answer is to that. And it gives you a chance, a, an honest, open question gives you a chance to reflect back on your own journey and find something that might shed light on the current moment. So if something like that has happened to you before, do you recall anything you learned at that time that might help be helpful in the present moment? The honest, open questions can just go on and on once you get the hang of them. And, and they involve what I think of as a really important skill, which is learning to hear each other into speech, hear each other into deeper and deeper speech. That, that doesn't happen when we feel that we're in a conversation where we either have to prove a point or prove ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. We, that becomes kind of at a subtle level, adversarial. It's like, no, wait, I'm, let me explain myself fuller, uh, more mm-hmm. fully. Um, but with an honest, open question, I'm, I'm given a chance to reach deeper in myself for what the response might be. And all of that in our circles of trust is sort of contexted in a respect for silence, so that the the air doesn't have to constantly be filled with Q and A, you know, speech, speech, speech. But there's this rhythm, and that takes me to the story I wanted to tell. Mm. So maybe ten years ago, I'm facilitating a circle of twenty five physicians, hmm. all of whom are, as you well know, hard pressed in the healthcare organizations they work for. We're, we're actually in a session where we are considering the topic of death and how we hold the experience of death, the reality of death, because daily healthcare professionals are asked to do that, but rarely are they given a chance to explore it, uh, which is cruel, really, mm-hmm. unimaginably heavy. So we're exploring this, this fundamental issue in life and in their work. And after a moment of silence, of reflection on something somebody just said, a physician speaks up and he says, you know, I work in a healthcare system that has me on the edge of violating my Hippocratic oath two or three times a week. Hmm. And in the normal conversation, someone would jump on that and they would say, oh, it's my, my, it's, it happens to me too. Or, well, here's what we did to fix that up. But in, this, in the circle of trust, people allow silence to fall so that folks can hear what's just been said. And more important, the speaker can hear what he's just said. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have this notion that one of the most fundamental conceits in our society is that just because we've said something, we understand what it means. (laughs) And that's often not the case. Um, So 
this fellow had 30, 45 seconds of silence to, to absorb what he had just said, that he's on the edge of violating his oath two or three times a week, and then he speaks again. He says, you know, that's the first time I've ever said that to a group of professional peers. Everybody's silent again, because people are sitting there recognizing that's this is just something we don't talk about. Hmm. We, we don't we may complain about the rules, but we don't make that honest statement of the soul that this I'm in danger because I'm constantly on the edge of violating my oath, and incidentally, so are my patients. Another period of silence, and this physician speaks for a third time. He said, the truth is, that's the first time I've ever said that to myself. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, at that moment, Greg, I felt like I was witnessing the fruits of a lot of time, effort, and energy put into crafting these circle of trust vehicles to help people go deeper in themselves and with each other about some of the most fundamental issues in life. He, he had had a chance to speak his own truth, not just in his closet uh, or scream it you know, out in the wilderness mm. or, or just say it to a therapist, but to a group of peers. And he, he, I thought, this guy is now on the cusp of a real dilemma. What does he do? <laughs> with what he has just heard from deep inside himself. Does he try to get the toothpaste back in the tube? You can't do that. It came from within him. Will he go home and try to do something with this truth that he has now enunciated so clearly and powerfully? And that's what he did. He went home over a period of the next six months, having realized in this circle that other physicians often felt the same way. He gathered some trusted friends, docs, in his hospital, and together they petitioned the administration successfully to create a penalty-free zone for the reporting of medical errors, which, of course, brings the whole system closer to the Hippocratic Oath, because medical errors, which generally go tucked away, hidden away, not talked about, are responsible for the very high rate of uh, iatrogenic illness in hospital deaths, probably sixth or seventh leading cause of death in the United States. And so they they built on this guy's moment of self-revelation, which could could have only happened in the kind of safe space, community of solitudes, being alone together that I've described. And it manifested in concrete and meaningful, effective organizational change. So I, I treasure that story as an example of what can happen when we are, when we we not only hold ourselves differently in terms of truth telling, but we are held differently in terms of truth telling by a group of people, a circle of trust. So much in that story. I want to first go back to something that you said early on. You said it's rare that it's ever experienced. And that really caught my attention because as I've been thinking about this over what 
is probably now maybe 25 years. My observation is that this need to be deeply heard, deeply seen, to have that space to be able to express and then not be interrupted and to open up again and to go layer after layer. It's like, I now think it is not rarely met. It is almost literally never met. And I could sense even in that small phrase, your lifetime of experience with this. But I wonder if you could speak to that. Which is it? Is it, is it rarely? Is it almost never? Talk to me about that. Well, I, I'll tell you this, after 25 years of doing circles of trust with mm. thousands of people, when they have an experience of the sort I've just described, which happens in almost every retreat, for, and it happens for more than one person, mm. I have always asked people, when was the last time something like that happened to you? And almost always the answer is, I've never had an experience like that in my life. And when we've talked about this, you can pretty easily identify a whole lot of other kinds of conversations and gatherings, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or larger numbers, that don't come anywhere near the experience that you and I are talking about here of truly being seen, truly being heard, and again, I want to say most fundamental of all, having the chance to see and hear yourself mm. because you are held in this, this kind of prismatic experience where you're looking at yourself and listening to yourself from different angles and something new starts to happen, not only within us, but between us mm -hmm. in, in, in the relationship, in the relational trust that is so key to everything. So I guess my answer would be not not hardly ever. Yes. Let's just stay with that for a second. What, from your point of view, is the cost of that to the individual, to families, to businesses, to society? Like, what is the cost of having this deep need routinely, continually, perpetually not met. Well, I can I can give you a nutshell on that pretty quickly. It's humongous mm. the cost is to individuals and to institutions. It's humongous in the following sense. Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. And we've got millions and millions of people walking around with unexamined lives because there aren't any opportunities to examine them in the way we're talking about. And when I got old enough, um, I'm 83 now, but I think it was when I was 70, I figured I'm old enough to amend Socrates. <laughs> so I came up with Palmer's uh, First Amendment to Socrates' dictum, which goes like this. If you choose to live an unexamined life, please do not take a job that involves other people. <laughs> because, I like it. Be, because as we were touching on earlier, Greg, my capacity to understand another person begins with my capacity to understand myself. If I haven't worked away 
at that inward journey of self-understanding, of the examined life, whatever you want to call it, how in heaven's name can I possibly discern anything deep and true and real about another human being? Can't even do it for myself. There's a lot of places I want to go with that, the conversation we're already building here. But the place that has energy, I would say, in you is this relationship between understanding self and understanding each other. And I think what I really hear in you is not that they're just interrelated, but I think what I hear from you is that you cannot understand yourself without somehow creating space between people to communicate and be heard. Like one way to think about understanding self versus understanding other people is as two separate processes. I go into the closet myself, I come out understanding me, I am a new person, and now I can communicate with other people. You know, very separate. Another is really overlapping Venn diagram. Mm -hmm. And that's the version you're saying you've experienced. That's what you've learned from these thousands of people, these endless uh, circle of trust experiences, is that it cannot happen that people will understand themselves without being in this kind of exchange with others. Am I overstating the point? Not at all, Greg. And I appreciate you putting a fine point to it exactly the way you did. There's this great fallacy regarding understanding ourselves that's, that that's something we can do all by ourselves. And we yes. can't. We are For one very, very simple reason. You and I talk out of experience about an inner voice of conscience or an inner voice of truth or an inner voice of guidance. But we have a lot of inner voices. We have yeah. voices of greed. We have voices of fear. We have voices of anger. We have voices of jealousy alongside these voices that you and I would applaud. People have a real, I mean, I have a very hard time discerning which voice I'm listening to. It may be determined in part by the headline I read this morning that has made mm -hmm. me raging angry mm -hmm. about this or that. And now I'm listening to that voice of anger, which always behind it has a voice of fear. And if, if, I'm, if, if I go into my closet and that's what I feel and that's what I come out with, uh, the results will, will, will not be uh, tasty. But if I'm able to find another person or persons or ultimately something like a circle of trust, and it doesn't take 25 people to make a circle of trust. I have that experience with, you know, one or two or three good friends who understand these kind of basic ground rules about keeping safe space between us, who, who don't quickly jump to the conclusion that they understand me exactly, and now they're going to give me good advice on what to do, because that, that's just not true. That, that is not possible. That's like the friend who's just suffered a terrible loss in his or her life, and you say, I know exactly how you feel. Mm. And that friend wants to run screaming into the woods because, no, you don't know mm. exactly. So if we start with the assumption that there's a paradox involved in understanding ourselves, and it's the paradox of solitude and community simultaneously overlapped in a Venn diagram, and then we do some thinking about 
what are the ground rules within that space that will keep the space safe for vulnerable expressions of truth? As that doctor in my story indicated, it's very vulnerable for a doc to say in front of other docs, I'm skating on the thin edge of unprofessional behavior, violating my oath several times a week. That's risky stuff. And in our culture, unfortunately, when we approach risk, we back off because hardly ever, if ever, are the ground rules for safety established. We're, we, are, we are in surfacey conversations. We are in adversarial conversations. You know, we are in informational conversations. Sometimes we are in legitimate intellectual debate conversations. All of that is good and worthy, and we need all of it. But we are never or rarely in conversations that involve safe space for vulnerable expression where I'm not trying to prove anything to you. I'm not trying to sell anything to you. I'm trying to understand myself, and you're giving me the grace of not trying to save me or fix me and of asking me honest, open questions to hear me into deeper speech. Slowly, slowly, I can then begin to discern the difference between the voice of anger and the voice of life-giving creativity in me. And that's what every collective enterprise in this world needs. Um, I've done I've done retreats, circle of trust retreats for politicians, for members of the U.S. Congress, and they've they've always said, you know, we can't get anywhere near this on the floor of the House or the Senate, but we need to do more of this in our own lives to to help us keep our eye on our own north stars. So yeah, I think I think this is a really important piece of, of uh, what social invention. We need to invent more spaces where it feels safe to express vulnerable truth. I was reflecting just in the last week, there's a hotel not far from uh, an event that I did, and it was called the Talking Stick Hotel, you know, from the Native American practice of you can only speak if you're holding the stick, and and so there's some order to the conversation. And I mean that I think is an example of what you're saying about solitude and community, about a way to be able to manage that. And and I remember that Stephen Covey once said that he believed. I don't know that there's any evidence. I don't know why he believed that they had taught this to the founding fathers. And what I believe is that. The United States as a country not would not exist, but could not exist if those original members had not found some way to be able to understand each other. And of course, it was looked like the things you've just said. Sometimes it was informational. Sometimes it was intellectual debate. Sometimes it was adversarial, of course. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to look at it through rose-tinted glasses, but somehow it also went beyond that to be able to create something that was different and better than you know each of them maybe individually would have expected. And it's hopeful to hear of the meetings that you've had with politicians. I see it as a material risk to the democracy itself if people cannot learn how to understand each other 
beyond the surface and the polarization. Am I exaggerating the concern? What's your view? I don't think you're exaggerating it at all. I think it's a very serious concern, just as you phrased it. I mean, the whole premise of the American operation is we the people, right? I mean, we can we can talk about the mix of the republic and the democratic structures within the republic. All of that is interesting. All of that is important, worth understanding. But when push comes to shove, it's we the people who are supposed to be running this show. And I think it's fair to say at the moment that in, in no meaningful way do we the people exist in the United States of America. And I'm not romantic either as an old community organizer. I, I certainly have no illusions about wouldn't it be nice if everybody got along. Every, everybody won't get along. But we have fallen far right now from the sort of minimal expectation that we will take time and put energy into listening deeply to one another without reverting instantly to know you're wrong and here's what's right, or worse still, you're evil and here's what's good and true. We have to approach this whole situation in a different way. I mean, in one of the pieces of writing I did about democracy back in, I don't know, 2011 or so, I proposed that we stop talking about the politics of rage and start talking about the politics of the brokenhearted. Mm. Because I felt that a lot of the surface manifestation of rage was about all of the heartbreak over losses that people were experiencing, the most obvious of which is the loss of economic stability, you know, the loss of reasonably easy access to middle-class status for lots and lots of Americans. As any doc knows, you can't just treat the symptoms. You have to treat the underlying disease. And it seemed to me that an underlying disease in our body politic mm. um, was, was the heartbreak at, at the heart of so much American experience. And, of course, since that time, it has just multiplied. It's manifested itself in some really, really dangerous ways. And we have yet to crack the code about how to penetrate through all of that. Well, you know, how, how, to, get, how to get through the hurricane that's, mm. ripping us, that's ripping us apart. Well, and I, I think, I mean, there's a couple of thoughts I have here. The phrase safe space is one you've used multiple times. And I wonder whether that phrase has to some extent become used as a counterfeit for what you're describing. Right. Because the way you're describing it is a place to communicate, yep. to be heard, not a place where you're not allowed to say certain things, which is, right. I think, how a caricature of it sometimes exists. And not that you have to change this for my sake, but but I wonder if there's a different term that actually names what you're describing that distinguishes it from, from this other caricature. It, it's almost like a truth space, or mm -hmm. I, don't know, I don't know if that's the be a better phrase, but that's the one that comes to mind because it's all about actually hearing what could be hard to hear, what you'd normally jump in with an opinion about and all these other reactions and, and defensiveness habits that we have in communication, you're saying, oh, it's exactly the opposite of that. This is a place so you 
everyone can talk. No, you're 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 again, you're you're right on as far as I'm concerned, Greg. You know, I I think this is one of the unfortunate products of the, of the state of academic discourse these days. The, mm. the safe space has been defined as a space where we will guarantee you that you won't hear anything upsetting or trauma-inducing or painful or hurtful in any shape, form, or fashion. Uh, my personal opinion is that, that I understand trauma. I, I work with people who have experienced trauma. But in higher education, I think a rule like that shuts down the whole, the whole challenge of exposing all of us to stuff that we haven't thought about before or haven't heard before the challenges are taken for granted assumptions that's what education is supposed to be about so in our kind of safe space and i would be fine with the with the phrase truth telling space mm. or something like that mm. in our kind of safe space we don't guarantee that you won't hear anything upsetting or challenging what we guarantee is that you will be at complete liberty to express that which is most vulnerable in you without fear of critique or put-down or marginalization, but with a, with a promise that you will be listened to and heard into deeper and deeper speech. And here's the thing that interests me, Greg. People have been, you know, over the years, have, been, have kind of wondered about that rule. Does it really, is that really the experience I'm going to have? Because mm. I've been conned a lot of times. You know, <laughs> but it's safe to speak here, and then they chop my head off. <laughs> we do this in a way, and we, we take a year and a half or two years to train facilitators because this is, this is tricky work. And I've always said, look, we're putting out a promissory note that this space will be safe for your soul. And that is a sacred responsibility, and we have to know exactly what we're doing in order to deliver on that promissory note. So, you know, we, we, we train facilitators to hold the space in a way and that, that comes as close as humanly possible to guaranteeing the kind of safety of vulnerable expression that I'm talking about. And by the end of the first evening, people are saying, I, I get this, and I, I, I want I, I understand that I have a role in helping keep the space safe, and this it's amazing and it's absolutely refreshing, and it it doesn't take a lot of fancy tricks to get there. It's pretty simple stuff. Invite people to tell life stories, learn to listen to those stories respectfully, uh, ask honest, open questions to help them tell more of that life story if they wish. Um, et cetera, et cetera. I wrote a book about this called The Hidden Wholeness, so folks who are interested in more detail will find it there. But um, I like your distinction a lot. Let's take a pause on this conversation here. There is so much wisdom that will continue for part two on Thursday. So for everybody listening out there, thank you really for listening. Uh, extend your experience by signing up for the One Minute Wednesday newsletter. And if you have found value in this episode with Parker Palmer, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. First five people to write a review of this episode will receive a signed copy of the New York Times bestseller, Effortless. Just send a photo of your review with your name and address to info at gregmcewen.com. Also, Remember to subscribe to this podcast right now so that you can receive 
the next episode. They come out every Tuesday and Thursday. So I'll see you next time for more wisdom from Parker Palmer as this conversation continues. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.